This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Right now, let's talk about some other federal government news here. And this has to do with getting a budget. They've announced they will unveil their first budget in two years on April the 19th. Now, they've taken a lot of criticism, rightfully so, from uh, the opposition in Ottawa over not introducing one before now or even giving any kind of a comprehensive economic statement about where things stand. So let's talk about what this is going to entail, what we might be hearing. Joining us now is Marvin Ryder, Associate Professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Good morning, Marvin. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you today. Uh, there's a lot of expectations for this budget. Uh, what do you think we're going to be hearing? Well, first, if I can say, a, a budget is a document you present. It tries to estimate what the revenues are going to be in the year ahead and the expenses are going to be in the year ahead. And then after you present a budget, you use it to control things. In other words, you keep checking on the progress. If revenue is below expectation, you make adjustments. If expenses are above expectations, you make adjustments. Now, a year ago, there was no budget submitted because the federal government said, well, we just we don't know. COVID is such an uncertain thing. We just don't know where it's going to go. We don't know what the costs are going to be. And, and if we put out something, it'll just be a guess, and we really can't use it to control anything. So the first thing this budget is going to do in April is do an accounting backwards. It's going to look back to the year that was in 2020 and explain how much money was spent, how it was spent, where it was spent, what have you. But I think what Christia Freeland was really hoping was that she could use the budget on April 19th to project a path to recovery. And she would talk about, here's how we're going to get this economy rolling again, get Canadians going again. There's just one problem. COVID isn't going away. Even with vaccinations appearing, in parts of the country, we now seem to be heading towards a third lockdown. So the recovery really won't begin until we can get COVID in the rearview mirror. So I think her budget is going to have a lot of ifs and buts, meaning, mm -hmm. you know, if this happens, we'll do this. But if that happens, we'll have to do this. Uh, it probably isn't going to seem like a regular budget at all. Do you think that's why they waited this long then? They were hoping for the ability to provide better news? Absolutely. Well, not necessarily better news, but more certain state of affairs. Uh, they, they normally are supposed to bring down a budget before the new fiscal year begins, which is on April 1st. Budgets are normally given in the third or fourth week of March. Right now would be a great time to do it. And I think they delayed because they were hoping, okay, we'll get through this second wave. The vaccinations are happening. Okay, road to recovery. Here we go. And instead, now it looks like there's a third wave. There's still a road to recovery here, and vaccinations are going to continue, but we still don't know if there's another round of lockdowns, what that's going to cost the government. And this, by the way, is also true for provincial governments. All the governments are in very uncertain uh, waters because they can't really control this disease. So have we ever gone this long before, Marvin, without having a federal budget? No. 
not in Canadian history and, frankly, not in the developed world's history. Other governments did bring down budgets, and if you were to take a look at, say, the German government or the French government or the British government, the government in power, the party in power, received lots and lots and lots of criticism because you said this on that date, and then, look, that hasn't happened at all. You didn't know what you were doing. And again, that's the problem. You know, you usually produce a budget to control things. It demonstrates how out of control things were during COVID. So I'm not sure what's the greater sin, admitting that you're not in charge and you're just sort of holding on for dear life or pretending like you are in charge and then facing the slings and arrows when it turns out you can't really be in control. Right. So they're essentially going to be opening them up for criticism regardless, though, right? It sounds like. Absolutely. I mean, if the, the job description for anyone in opposition is to oppose, and, and you, you they always have three standard arguments. The government is doing too much, the government is doing too little, or they should have done this five years ago. These are the standard arguments. So I, I think, however, that Christia Freeland is aware that the typical length of a minority government in Canada is a little over two years. And our last federal election was in October of uh, 2019. Uh, So you add two years to that, that gets you to uh, September 2021. Hmm, we're kind of in that time period where somebody might call an election. Uh, The federal conservatives just had a policy convention. I know they're coming out all charged up. Uh, On the other hand, the polls are saying they're not doing that well nationally. So I'm not sure uh, if this is going to trigger an election, but any budget document is always voted on as a vote of confidence in the government. If it can't get passed, we're into a spring election. So I think this is also going to be partly on her mind. We better have a couple of goodies in there that we can take out to the public if we vote. This sounds like uh, an unbelievably um, critical document, Marvin, that's going to be impossible to please anybody. There's a lot of expectations here. Well, welcome to government. Welcome to government (laughs) during a pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. There won't be enough to please anybody, but can you make a logical argument for what it is you're trying to do? So, again, I think Christia Freeland really wanted to focus on the recovery. We know that not everyone has suffered to the same extent during the pandemic, or to say it differently, people have suffered uh, quite a bit differentially. Younger people, hourly workers have suffered more, Uh, women have suffered more, indigenous and and new Canadians have suffered more. So I'm sure there were going to be some programs aimed at them. I think there's also going to be targets for sectors of the economy. Travel, tourism, and hospitality are still not back. You announced that that WestJet says they're going to resume service to Eastern Canada, but that's in June. That's that's, another three months from now. It shows you again how severely locked down those industries have been, and they're probably going to need some help to bounce back. So Uh, For other people, I don't think the banks have been hurting all that badly. I don't think uh, real estate's been hurting all that badly. So it's going to be a very difficult budget to find just the right amount of support for the right people at the right time. Is it possible, though, that there is a chance that this budget would be the reason that we would have an election? Well, it could be. You know, I think it all depends how much Mr. Trudeau wants to, quote, build back better. If he wants to use this budget to really launch a whole series of nation-building or nation-changing things, then yes, I think it should trigger an election. 
I would say, by the way, I don't think you should do that. I don't think we're through COVID well enough that we should really get too far down the road of rebuilding back better. We still got to get through this. We've got to get those vaccines out there. We've got to get them into the arms. We've got to get people back on their feet. You know, I actually think that's better for next year's budget when we are truly clear of this. But if he wants to put a, a platform out of this uh, sort of new vision for Canada, you could certainly fight an election on it. I don't, I don't think he does. Uh, I know there have been uh, governments that have gone to an election during the time of COVID, and they've come through pretty well. But this, this would be really rolling the dice for Justin Trudeau. We'll see what happens. Marvin, thank you. My pleasure. Great chat. That's Marvin Ryder, Associate Professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of worries about the cruise ship industry here in BC, not just with the pandemic, but also with potential rules changing in the United States. There's concerns that are growing that cruises to Alaska may simply just bypass British Columbia altogether. And it all hinges on a piece of legislation that dates back to 1886 that prevents foreign-owned passenger vessels from docking in two American ports without an intermediary stop. Well, when you look at that, you think, well, we are the intermediary stop between stopping in Seattle or somewhere, you know, Los Angeles, or moving on to Alaska. So joining us to explain how this all works and what might be at stake here, the concerns, is the CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority, Ian Robertson. Ian, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Simi. So what's going on with this potential legislation here? Well, it's uh, legislation uh, that, uh, that's that been in the works now for a couple of months. Uh, we were made aware of it. Uh, we stay in frequent contact with our partners uh, in the Alaska ports, and uh, Alaska's been devastated. Probably, uh, according to Alaska stats, uh, the state most affected by the drop in tourism of any of the states in the U.S. And uh, cruise tourism is huge for these uh, small ports in Alaska, so this legislation uh, was brought up by a congressman out of uh, out of Alaska and two uh, U.S. state senators in Alaska. So we've been watching it very closely. Um, it, uh, it if passed, it could uh, temporarily, uh, you know, it could have a, a significant impact. But we're watching it more closely because if it were to become a, a temporary and then a permanent waiver, uh, it could be devastating. Now, I want to underscore that uh, all of the information that we're receiving says this is a, a small chance, but yet. It could have a, a, an incredibly devastating impact upon crews in British Columbia. It's worth over $2.5 billion to the British Columbia economy. So what would it mean for Alaska then? So it would, would there be more time spent in Alaska? Is that why they want this to happen? Yeah, correct. So this mainly is targeting uh, cruises uh, originating out of Seattle. Uh, and uh, Seattle and Vancouver share the home port duties for the Alaska itinerary. So this is more or less targeting the ships out of uh, out of Seattle which means so they could they could sail up to Seattle they could spend more time in ports there and then come come back right to Seattle without coming into Victoria now that said um, we've done a lot of work over the last uh, six to eight years to really build up uh, Victoria and the importance of Victoria and the value of Victoria in that uh, in that stop but nonetheless uh, you know we're watching this uh, very closely that's what I was wondering, too, is that for a cruise ship industry, a varied itinerary is good, right? Like, wouldn't customers want to stop in Vancouver and Victoria? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. People book the trip because it's Alaska. And and for a lot of visitors that come here, I talk to them. Victoria is an incredibly, what I call, happy surprise. 
Uh, they don't know that there's a stop in Victoria, but a lot of them tell me, uh, and I have nothing against the Alaska ports, once you've seen a couple of Alaska ports, you've seen them all. So they're, they're quite excited to get off and spend time in Victoria. Victoria is one of the highest rated uh, ports of call uh, in North America, outside the Caribbean. Uh, so we've done a good job, all of us here in Victoria, of, of building the value of, of the cruise line stopping here. So, uh, you know, but again, it's it's a nuisance, it's a worry, uh, right. and uh, we're, we're, you know, following it really closely. I can see why it would be a concern, though, because if you're American, you don't really know that, oh, Victoria is a nice place for you to stop, right? It, as you said, it's a happy surprise. Yeah, exactly. And I think what this underscores, though, is that... Uh, you know, we need the province and the federal government to come up with a plan on how to reopen the land and marine borders. And I think without that plan, there's lots of speculation. And I think that's part of what's contributing to this. So, you know, we do need the, we do need the province. We do need the feds to come up with a plan. We get it that now's not the time to open the borders. So we need to make sure that everyone's vaccinated. We understand that. We've supported that. But you know what? Uh, it, we're getting there. Uh, but I think all of us in tourism right across the province and throughout Canada need to know what the plan is to safely reopen our borders. So do you think if we have the plan then, and then the industry has some certainty, this idea will perhaps fall by the wayside? Absolutely. I think all the time that we don't uh, send a signal that we want to do business uh, is uh, creates uncertainty. And, uh, and I believe that is contributing to this. Uh, Alaska does need some certainty. They need some help right now this year. Uh, so I understand that, but I think uh, uh, if if uh, if both our governments were to engage, uh, that would help. And you know, the province can play a big role here. Uh, you know, yes, uh, Transport Canada does make the ultimate decision, but I can tell you, having talked to Transport Canada, they're listening very closely to the province. So we need the province on our side, on the side of tourism. To, uh, to advocate for what's the plan to reopen right. the borders in a safe way. So, Ian, given that this has hit the news quite loudly, I would say, in the last 24 hours, do you expect some more meetings on this, some more attention from the provincial and federal governments? Well, I hope so. I reached out to uh, Minister Mark to uh, to offer to brief her a couple of weeks ago. My offer was turned down, and I've uh, reset that request. I'm happy to meet for her to understand the importance of, uh, of cruise tourism in British Columbia. And uh, we'll wait and see. But I'm hoping that uh, this latest focus uh, will cause uh, some people to uh, get their attention and to and to do what they can to support uh, a tourism industry that's literally on its knees. And, and now with this legislation, it's not helping. All right. Well, Ian, thank you very much for your time on this. We'll keep in touch. You bet. Thanks, Simi. Ian Robertson is the CEO of the Greater Victoria Harbour Authority. They are worried, as are, you know, cruise ship industry people here in Vancouver, about this proposed legislation from a U.S. congressman and two state senators from Alaska to try to have essentially foreign ports bypassed by cruises that originate in the United States. It would mean that they wouldn't be required to stop in a place like Victoria or Vancouver. They could go Seattle, Alaska, add an Alaska protocol, and then just come back to Seattle. That would be devastating for us. This is Mornings with Simi. So teachers at schools in Surrey will be among the first in line for shots of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. And we're also learning at what stage, which schools, how this is going to work. So we thought, let's talk about this plan. Surrey School District Superintendent Jordan Tinney joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Happy to be here. So how, are, how did you develop the priority list? How did you decide which schools, which teachers are going to go first? 
So uh, as you, I'm sure you'd be aware, working with health over the last year and um, just analyzing the case data, we know the schools and the areas of the district that have the most exposures and the most uh, cases of COVID. So that's where we began. Okay. So what are those areas? So it would really be kind of the panorama, Sullivan up through Newton and into city center. Those will be the priority areas. So um, kind of all of the the west, so, you know, Midwest up to the north of Surrey, uh, those will be the first areas to get uh, the vaccine. And then we'll follow with all areas after that. Now, will it be teachers or is it all staff who essentially work it's at those schools? All staff. Okay. And where are they yeah. going to go to get these shots? Uh, so they're right now, the place is going to be right. Uh, there's the old Best Buy in city centre is the, is the clinic, and that's the station they'll use first. And then my understanding is they're going to open up other stations, perhaps one in the south and uh, one more easterly. What kind of a relief is it for you to hear, Jordan, that this is going to now be happening? Because this must have been, inc- has been incredibly stressful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sure, it's, it's great news. We're incredibly grateful. It is um, I think a relief to know that we all talk about sort of the, the light at the end of the tunnel and piece by piece we're getting there. But, you know, Surrey is, is one district and this is not all people in the district. There's still a long ways to go. There are colleagues in neighbouring districts, places like Coquitlam and Abbotsford and Burnaby and Delta and Langley. And so I think it's, it, we're incredibly thankful and, and we just hope that it, it goes from here and builds and others are quickly behind. Do you know when this is going to get underway? For Surrey, it gets underway today. I think three o'clock today, and um, the initial capacity is about 400, 450 slots, and then it'll build to 1,000 and 1,500 slots. And we hope to have over 8,500 people vaccinated by April 1st. Wow, that's going to be pretty ambitious. What kind of response are you getting from teachers? Is there a lot of relief in the system? I think um, a lot of thanks and a lot of relief, but also, uh, you know, again, it's not everyone. So, you know, we're, we're still trying to get clarity and, and health has been incredibly supportive. Uh, but you can imagine it's gone very quickly. You know, what about our, our teachers teaching on call? What about our spare board EAs? Uh, what about bus drivers and uh, grounds and maintenance, people like that? So we're going to continue to refine and clarify the list. And, you know, the bottom line is there's only so much vaccine and we just hope more vaccine arrives and we're able to do everybody quickly. Okay, so still a lot of pressure then. It it sounds like getting this done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of relief for sure and a lot of thanks. But, you know, when we say it's all school-based staff, there are lots of staff. You think of someone like a bus driver who, you know, they're not school-based. So, you know, where are they in the priority and things like that? And our temporary employees like spare board EAs that go school to school. So, um, again, we're we're working with health and we, we are very optimistic but we just wanted to get it rolling as quickly as we could. And health's been a wonderful partner in that. Now, I know that last time we talked, Jordan, here on the show, we were talking about you were putting the call out to parents to kind of be extra vigilant, right? Hoping that they would pay a little bit more attention, especially with spring break kind of winding up. What was the response to that like? And do you think people were listening to that? Uh, you know, I think at the time, you know, we're just trying to tell people to hang in there. I think people grow weary and tired. It's a long haul you know, through the, the dark days of January, February, I do think people listen, um, but also people are, are longing for a better day. And so, uh, you know, personally, I think it's still super important. Everybody keeps their guard up. Uh, you know, the vaccine is not the solution to everything. It's one piece, but all of the basics still matter. And as you, you probably know, right before spring break, we're looking at putting additional measures in school um, starting next Monday when we return. And so um, we're still very active and, of course, still very concerned. We're still in the middle of pandemic. Right. So we should reiterate that then, that those measures are still going ahead. 
Absolutely. And, and those measures are still very important. You know, it's uh, even with a, you know, a needle in your arm today, it's two weeks before you're going to be, or, um, you know, hopefully that the vaccine takes effect. But this is just for some adults in the system, those who are school based. Um, it's still no children and we're still in the age based um, system. So please keep doing what you need to do to, to keep all of us safe. Yeah. Can we reiterate that then to parents out there? What would you like to tell them? Well, I think for parents, I, all the basics matter, right? Continue to talk to your child about um, basically uh, stay home if you have any symptoms at all. And if you do have symptoms, go get tested. Still keep your physical distance. You know, the fact that teachers in schools and, and your EA uh, may be vaccinated is, is no substitute for physical distancing. Um, keeping, um, you know, your hands washed, don't touch your face. Uh, the requirements are there to wear masks at all times. In, in elementary, wearing masks is a parental choice, and we encourage a culture of mask wearing. And so all of those things are still in play. All right. We'll remind people of that. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. All right. You take care. Thank you. You too. That is Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School Superintendent, talking about their plan to get teacher vaccinations underway in that city. They start uh, on the 24th. That is today. They get underway three o'clock this afternoon, as he pointed out. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So over the last uh, couple of days, we have been talking about the issue of for-profit long-term care homes. We spoke yesterday with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh because the federal NDP have put forward a motion in Ottawa to, to make that happen. It is easier said than done, though, because there are a lot of for-profit care homes uh, in this country. It is a multifaceted industry, and even non-profit homes have also struggled with COVID-19 outbreaks during the pandemic. So how do we improve the situation? Do we need to close for-profit care homes? Do we need tougher regulations for them? So we thought, let's talk to Terry Lake about this, the CEO of the BC Care Providers. Good morning. Thank you for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me again. Now, what is your impression to this motion that the NDP have put forward in Ottawa then about ending for-profit care here in Canada? Well, I think it's more about ideology uh, than improving uh, the care system for our elders. Uh, it's not surprising that uh, NDP governments uh, have supported, you know, um, uh, getting uh, for-profits out of this sector. But when you look at the data, uh, Simi, uh, especially when it's uh, related to COVID, uh, there's no correlation between the ownership model and the uh, the severity or number of outbreaks. The, the biggest single factor is the spread in the community. So in areas like Fraser Health, for instance, where we saw a, a huge rise in community spread in the fall, uh, we saw a number of outbreaks uh, at for-profit uh, care centres, but Fraser Health has more for-profit care centres than any other health authority. So it really was just a, a relationship between the, the community spread and the, the type of ownership model that's most common in that region. So how can we fix the situation, right? Because that is the end result. People don't want to see anything like what happened over the past year happen again. What does that take to fix that? 
Well, I think we need to have a really good look at what happened in the first wave and the second wave and once the vaccines uh, happened. You know, and, and people will use the data to fit their, their narrative and their ideological argument. So I think it's really important that we have a completely independent look at what happened, not just here in B.C., um, where we did very well in the first wave and not so well in the second wave, but across Canada and, in fact, around the world to see what best practices are out there that we can employ. But I will say that the long-term care system here in British Columbia, I would argue, is the best in Canada. We have a, a mix about one-third uh, not-for-profit, one-third for-profit, and one-third government-owned and operated. And, um, you know, the government does have tremendous amount of regulation over the system. Uh, we just saw, for instance, an operator in Merritt have uh, taken over by the health authority because of inspections that showed some deficiencies. So, you know, we, we tend to spot the, the problems and, and deal with them more quickly here in B.C. than elsewhere. But, of course, there's more we can do, and, and we should look at what that is. So does it take regulation? Does it take more inspections, then, do you think, to keep everybody on their toes? Well, first of all, it requires more investment. Uh, Dr. Samir Sen has often said that Canada invests about 30% less in seniors' care than comparable countries in the OECD. And don't forget that whether we're talking about for-profit or not-for-profit providers, uh, the vast majority of uh, placement in in long-term care is funded uh, through the public system, at least to a large degree. So we can only provide the care uh, that uh, government supports, and, and we under- uh, invest in seniors care here in Canada. So that's number one. And already the government here in BC has has increased the investment with wage leveling to ensure that people are paid well, uh, that they only have to work at one facility in order to have a living wage. So that's the first thing. In, in terms of regulation, it is well regulated here in BC. We have, uh, you know, uh, I think good inspections, but we, we've got to be careful not to you know, just create work that doesn't have the right outcomes. So I think we need to look at outcomes rather than uh, just a checklist of things that people need to do. Um, and again, looking back over the past year, I think we'll come up with some some improvements that will uh, will help us in the future. Right, but when will we know that some of the things that you just mentioned there have had that impact? You said, look at outcomes. How long does it take for us to be able to see that our outcomes, like how they measured up? Well, it's a good question. I think once, you know, COVID sort of settles back into some form of normalcy, then we'll be able to take a look back. The seniors advocate has already announced she's going to be doing a review of, of outbreaks here in British Columbia, and we certainly support that. Uh, some of our own members, like Langley Lodge, did their own internal review. We did a review uh, after the first wave and made recommendations uh, to government, uh, some of which have been implemented, others uh, have not. So, you know, we need to have a, a sober second look at, at everything that happened and determine what things we can put in place along with that increased investment that will make the system better and safer. But uh, on the other hand, we have to be careful not to create a, a hospital-like environment because these are people's homes. And so we need to have that right balance between a quality of life and obviously uh, protecting people from infectious disease. So do you think this is going to stick then, Terry, like this attention being paid to the long-term care industry, obviously long overdue, right? We didn't pay enough attention before. Uh, Or do you think is this just a pandemic situation? 
Well, as humans, we, we tend to deal with the things that are right in front of us. Right. So it's garnered more attention than normal for sure. But I think the impact, of course, where, you know, almost uh, two thirds, if not more of, of deaths have occurred in long-term care and assisted living. I think this has focused government. It's focused the public on this issue. And so I, I'm hopeful uh, that uh, significant changes will be made and, and that we'll all work together to make the system much better. We hope so. Terry, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Simi. That's Terry Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers, uh, talking about the federal NDP motion to uh, get rid of for-profit long-term care homes in the country. The thing is, so many of them are. So what do you do with all those beds? How much money is that going to cost? And as Terry Lake points out, he feels the system is working with some you know, increased level of inspection and regulation. He feels that in BC, their their good good job is being done. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been a busy few days for members of BC Teachers Federation. They just wrapped up their annual general meeting and all sorts of items on the agenda. So we thought, let's talk more about that. Joining us is Terry Mooring, president of the BCTF. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. First off, let's get your reaction to Surrey teacher vaccination starting today at 3 o'clock. Yeah, that, that's a huge relief. Relief. And, uh, and I know that at our annual general meeting, teachers were very concerned about supporting teachers and uh, students, of course, and um, uh, families and support staff in those areas that are re- the hardest hit in the province, and Surrey is certainly one of them. Uh, and so it was, we're really gratified that those uh, immunizations or vaccinations are moving ahead. And, um, you know, it, it, and it needed to happen. Uh, you know, we're looking at such a high rate of uh, COVID-19 cases every single day now. We're looking at, you know, in- the increase of the variant, especially in these hard-hit areas. And so, you know, it's appropriate that that happen, and, and we're happy that it is going ahead. Now, what about other districts? Do you know how, we know the teachers are going to get vaccinated, but have you gotten more information about which other districts are going to get this, how this is going to roll out? I don't have that information, but I do certainly hope that there's a similar approach taken. If, uh, if vaccinations can't be given across the whole province at the same time, and, and they probably can't, um, that those areas that are hard to hit are prioritized. So, you know, there, I know that there's uh, situations, especially in the Fraser Health Authority, those districts, you know, tend to be harder hit. And so we're hoping that they're prioritized. So at the annual general meeting this year, must have been a little bit different. Uh, what, what did you hear from teachers about their concerns? What is on their minds? Well, health and safety, you know, it was definitely a top concern amongst teachers and the concerns about the preventative measures and, uh, you know, and those sorts of things. And I don't think that's any surprise um, that that is something that, uh, you know, is top of mind of teachers. But, you know, other issues such as climate justice and racial justice, you know, with the shootings in Atlanta um, and the prevalence of uh, anti-Asian racism, you know, in B.C. as well. Uh, you know, there, there were a lot of issues for us to discuss, that's for sure. Right. The anti-Asian racism has been obviously very talked about the last couple of days. Is that something teachers have witnessed and had to deal with? Absolutely. And, you know, something that teachers have conversations with students about, um, you know, are uh, Asian uh, teachers, teachers of Asian descent, um, do articulate, you know, situations of racism. And we had some examples at our meeting um, stated. Um, and, and certainly our students and families, you know, are experiencing increased racism. And, 
and you know, and we know that it's it's not just BC and Canada, but it's you know in North America, and so th- this is something that you know uh, we generally do talk about uh, these types of issues, but certainly it was more intensified at uh, at this meeting. Now I know that also up for discussion was the you know the BCTF's uh, opinion of the school liaison program where police officers are stationed in some schools. Uh, what happened with that discussion? So this is an issue where we're, we're um, looking at more closely. It actually didn't come up. Not all our resolutions come up at our meetings. We have many of them come forward. Um, but this is something that we have talked about uh, as, as an organization um, and, and certainly something that we're looking into more. Uh, you know, our teachers who are Indigenous, Black, and, and persons of colour, uh, you know, do indicate concerns about the program. Um, disproportionately uh, to to others, uh, and we see that you know students also who identify who are Black, Indigenous, um, or students of color tend to have different attitudes towards the school liaison program um, than other students, and so that needs to be taken seriously. Uh, we need to take a really hard look at the program, the intention of the program, and the effect. And what we're seeing, I think, is the effect of the program is not the same. Um, depending on, you know, the student or the teacher. So how is the BCTF going to take a look at this then? Well, we're looking, we're doing some research with our own uh, teachers um, to, you know, just ask those questions and and dig into it a little bit more deeply. At this point, we don't have recommendations, and that, you know, is something not something that we uh, discussed at this meeting. But I do anticipate we will moving forward. It's an important issue. It needs to be taken seriously and, and looked at very carefully. Uh, very quickly as well, I was going to ask you, uh, did the situation with masks come up at all during this meeting? Because despite the vaccination, that's obviously still a concern. A- absolutely. <laughs> and um, that that was something that we you know discussed quite thoroughly. And that is something that is, is necessary. Um, masks, physical distancing, ventilation systems, they all came up. Um, and those are issues that we need, we're continuing to push on, obviously, even with vaccinations. Um, and obviously, you know, the vaccination pro- program is starting. Uh, teachers won't be, and support staff will not be fully vaccinated, um, but they uh, will be getting their first shot, obviously. And so those preventative measures still need to be in place, and we're aware of that. And there's still research being done, of course. Um, and students and youth will not be vaccinated. And so there's still a need for masks and, and all the other preventative measures uh, to be that masks need to be expanded. So we're, that position that we have taken it has not changed. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Sami. That's Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation.